The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, March 3rd at a conference on criminal justice policy, California Crime, hosted by Capital Weekly. Today's panel presentation is Solutions, a New Approach. This panel was moderated by Bironda Lyons, a reporter for CalMatters. California Crime was presented as part of Capital Weekly's California Conference Series. Support for California Crime was provided by KP Public Affairs, the Western States Petroleum Association, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, Pandora, and the California Professional Firefighters. Thank you so much for having me. Again, I'm Baranda. I am a justice reporter with CalMatters, and I'll be moderating today's excellent panel. We have Captain Brian Blixer um, from the Los Angeles Police Department. We have Hillary Blout from For the People. We have Tanish uh, from California's Californians for Safety and Justice, and Michael Romano from the California Committee on the Revision of the Penal Code. Thank you all for joining. Um, I want to dive right in with uh, sort of as I was preparing for this panel, uh, shortly a few weeks ago, uh, UC Berkeley came out with uh, a poll, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, that said um, Californians, 78% of the voters that they surveyed thought crime had increased statewide. Um, and most of them that they uh, surveyed wanted changes to Prop 47, which was passed by voters in 2014, uh, changing some felonies to misdemeanors. Um, I, I kind of want to start here and just ask the question that I've gotten from several regular Californians. Are these reforms working? Is California's approach, different approach to justice? And uh, is, it, is it working? And uh, we can start with uh, the first person I see is Hillary. Can we start? We can start with you. Thanks so much, um, Verona. Nice to see you. And thanks for having me on this um, panel for this discussion. Uh, you know, I, I mean, um, I worked on Prop 47, um, worked on the implementation of Prop 47. Um, and so I'm probably, um, you know, I'm, I'm familiar, I'm very familiar with it. And I do think that the reforms are working. Um, I don't think that they are um, going to undo decades of what has happened in this country. Um, it's not a silver bullet strategy. It's not going to be one reform that happens in California and then everything is fixed. Um, and so, you know, it's the, the, the series of changes that are happening that are going to get us closer to where we all want to be. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that when we, we certainly, I certainly get questions around, um, you know, both uh, crime rates and also just the perception, right? It's um, people feel a certain way about what they're reading and what they're experiencing um, in their communities. And um, I think for us, uh, you know, from my perspective, I think what's really important is that we are able to distinguish, right, what the issues are that are arising and not have that have an impact on all the great work that we've done so far. Um, we still have gaps. We have a lot of gaps. Um, you know, the, the type of funding that's available to provide people resources when they come home, you know, that is not fully, you know, adequately um, funded. 
Um, and so, you know, when we talk to people that have come home and the challenges that they face, it's jobs, it's housing, it's, you know, access to services. And so, you know, we, we believe in the direction that we're going, but we're, you know, certainly not done. And there's certainly more, you know, work to do. Does anyone have anything to add to that? Well, I want to follow up on, on the point you made, which is the perception of crime. Like, you know, people, you can give data all day, but unfortunately, um, in a lot of ways, um, in a lot of ways, the perception is what drives policy. Um, and so you've seen lawmakers come out, you know, with bills currently that would sort of address or try to carve away some of Prop 47's um, changes. Um, does, and this is more of a question uh, for Mike with, his, uh, with the Penal Code Revision uh, Committee, but anyone can jump in. Does California, do we need more laws like that? Or do we have enough laws on the books to address the issues that California is facing? Well, we have a ton of criminal laws. I mean, the, the list of criminal laws is, you know, as thick as a phone book. Um, first of all, I want to echo a lot of what Hillary said. I think I agree with almost every, you know, with everything that she said in general about Prop 47. Um, it has reduced racial disparities amongst uh, criminal sentencing. It's saved hundreds of millions of dollars that have been directed into services and school programs and anti-recidivism programs throughout the state that I think have ultimately helped improve communities. And study after study after study shows it has no, no impact on uh, public safety. And furthermore, for those people who think that they wanna be recalled, and I am familiar with the LA Times story, we just had on the ballot an effort to recall or reform prop uh, 47 and that was prop 20 and it lost miserably at the polls. So I'm a little bit skeptical about the LA Times um, poll. In terms of crime rates and how people feel, um, honestly, um, this is a conundrum because undoubtedly since all of these reforms were enacted, cr violent crime and property crime are down dramatically throughout the state and we're at historic lows um, over the past 10 years at the same time that, that we have reduced our jail and prison populations significantly. We can do both at the same time and we have been doing both at the same time. Now, for some reason over the past several months, the media in particular have picked up on a series of stories that have highlighted um, criminal activity and, um, and blamed an eight-year-old law that really has very little to do with the crimes that are being um, depicted. Now, that does not mean that we don't have more work to be done and more solutions to be had, particularly around uh, addiction and uh, mental illness. Uh, I was pleased to read just this morning that the governor is coming out with a new plan um, to aggressively address the problem uh, of addiction, which we have you know, as a state and a country not adequately addressed in terms of how to um, f figure out um, an, the, a middle path towards addressing people who are sick, both mentally ill and addicted, but also are engaged in criminal activity because the criminal justice system is not adequately set up for assisting and helping people who are sick. And the mental health care system is not adequately set up for helping people who are in the criminal justice, who are, who are, breaking, who are breaking laws. And we need to find some sort of third way. And I think that we've all been struggling with that. There, you know, mental health courts and drug courts and all sorts of intermediate steps, um, but nothing really has been successful. And that's not un unique to California. That is you know, a problem 
uh, nationwide. So I applaud the governor's effort. Of course, the devil's in the details and how it's implemented. But I, you know, um, I applaud the governor's governor's effort there. I mean, the bottom line, again, just to circle back to your question, is the perception of crimes undoubtedly on the rise. The same polling, though, that I've seen is that voters do do believe that crime is on the rise, although that is belied by the actual statistics. In some cases, it's because crime has shifted to different neighborhoods. But what I think is, what I'm optimistic about is the same polling or similar polling shows that voters still support comprehensive criminal justice reform. So I think that there's a perception among voters that the whole system is broken and, and not working. Crime is work, crime may be up, or at least the perception of crime is up, but they also realize that the systems of mass incarceration are also not working. So that requires a lot of creative solutions. We're working on them. They're, these are hard problems and without easy solutions. Um, uh, Captain Blixer, I saw you nodding your head. Um, do you have anything to add? But just, you know, I. When it comes to perception, and that's what we deal with a lot, we deal with a lot of crime numbers. And, and you know, if you look at the numbers in, in the city of L.A. over the last couple of years, you have seen violent crime increase uh, month over month and year over year. We've had more homicides, um, more violent crime robberies uh, in the city of Los Angeles. And whether that's, you know, uh, cause and effect or not, um, I'm, I'm really not here to talk about that. One of the things that you did talk, Mike, was. Um, the systems that are in place. And um, speaking specifically for the city of Los Angeles, we've had a, a co-deployed model of mental health intervention since 1992, which we pair a police officer with a Department of Mental Health clinician. And we go out and we handle calls and we deal with people who are in a, in a mental health crisis, sometimes involved in criminal activity, sometimes not. And sometimes people can't make that distinction. Um, and we have grown in numbers, in size, We've also just recently implemented a 911 diversion system um, in the city of LA where people can call in either themselves or a second party or a third party. And if they have suicidal ideation or dealing with a, a mental health struggle across the country, the only solution when people called 911 was, was, was to call 911 and we'd send a police car. Um, that's changing across the country. And what we're doing now is we simply take that call and transfer it to the D.D. Hirsch suicide hotline they take that call on a dedicated line and we've a uh, year to date, I'm sorry, um, since uh, February of last year, we've diverted almost 1700 calls away from any type of law enforcement response at all. Um, and that is kind of the piece that Mike was talking about of how do we, how do we divert that front end? How do we reduce that incarceration of people who are struggling with mental illness? And a lot of times those calls would have ended up with police officers showing up um, and sometimes a criminal act can occur in front of a police officer. And then the police officer would then um, make the arrest. And the only two places they had to take him were either to uh, the county mental hospital or jail. And now we've got uh, systems in place and I'm helping other agencies across the country to implement similar systems wherein we're kind of taking that front end that we call it intercept zero, where people may be on their way to criminal activity, either driven by their mental illness um, or not. And we're, we're effectively diverting those people now, what Mike also said is that the mental health system is also broken. It means we just don't have enough spots, don't have enough beds um, in the state of California. So if we take somebody who is in an acute mental health crisis and we're effectively diverting them away from a, a law enforcement response and we give them to a, um, say, a, an urgent care center, Exodus Urgent Care runs an amazing uh, system here in LA, or we take them to uh, a, a psychiatric ward in a, in a hospital, well, a lot of times we're seeing that person out within 24 hours because they're stabilized. Um, they're back on the street 
but there's no intermediary place for them to go because once they get back on the street, they're starting to decompensate again. So I think that there are lots of systems on the law enforcement side, lots of reform going on, but divert to where now? It's, it's like we said, where, where are those beds? Where are those intermediate facilities where people can stabilize, can get back on that road to recovery, whether it's from mental health or from substance abuse? So that's kind of where the balancing act, like you said, we, we've got these great reforms. We've got these, you know, and for us, it's not really reforms. It's been something we've been doing for, you know, since 1992. Um, but now is the mental health system going to catch up where we can find a place to put these people to get them back on the road to recovery? Tanish, do you have anything to add? No, I just appreciate uh, that perspective and, and, you know, really want to call attention to the fact that the real spirit behind Prop 47 um, uh, in, in the whole attempt to reform is that we want to use the appropriate responses. We want to prevent crime from happening in the first place. We want to keep people safe. Um, but I think Prop 47 also gave us the opportunity to expand the definition of public safety and what does that mean and how are we able to scale up the, the appropriate responses. Um, you know, as, um, as it was just being mentioned, um, you know, it's an important part of making sure um, that folks don't recidivate, that our streets stay safe, that our communities are, are well. Uh, and that really is the spirit behind all of the reform work. Um, we want to replace systems with things that haven't worked. And that's not an overnight process. And, you know, understanding the current landscape, the tensions and the frustrations, um, and in my opinion, what feels like cognitive dissonance around uh, the pandemic, the impact of the public health, global public health crisis that we're all experiencing uh, and layering in um, the, the uh, public health crisis of violence that many of our communities have been overburdened with for decades. Um, so it's really important to understand that while we are experiencing a really tough time right now uh, and we may not have um, all of what we need to respond in this moment, the hundreds of millions of dollars that we've been able to reinvest into the appropriate responses are working. They are helpful. They are actually um, saving lives. They are actually moving people out of crisis and into stability. Um, they are preventing recidivism. We would like to ups we'd like to scale that up. And the only way that we're able to do that is if we're able to continue to move the investments to the right approaches, be smart on public safety and expand the definition of public safety to really include prevention, rehabilitation and well-being and be able to play up um, and really help, uh, you know, the public at large understand what that looks like. We understand we may not have enough um, to respond to the crisis in this moment, but there is definitely a response. There are definitely investments that have gone um, to many of the programs that have been mentioned here um, to, to deal with mental illness, um, to deal with addiction and recovery, um, you know, to get folks into supportive and long-term housing. And we really need to be able to tell that story and help folks understand um, that this is a comprehensive part of public safety. So one thing, I mean, you all are just hitting all the points. I don't know if I'm going to have questions at the end. But one thing that has that California is doing is it's leading the nation in in these issues, right? We're we're ahead of thinking about incarceration different, thinking about um, adding support to people who are incarcerated, trying to really um, deal with the fact that a lot of people who are mentally ill unfortunately wind up in prison. And a lot of that is because several issues have not been addressed, you know, beforehand. One thing that I'd like to know, and, and from a legislative, from a state standpoint, 
we're always pushing, we're always trying something different. What have what has the reform movement sort of gotten right? And what can the state or legislators do to make it better? Sort of what, what when you look at what we have now, what's wrong with what's what, what we've created and what's right with it? And how can the state sort of deal with it in a, in a way that can make a shift in a positive way? I'll, I'll start real quick with just something that's kind of, and, and it's not criminal law, but it's um, the um, when we're talking about civil law, for the example, Lantrum and Petra Short Act. Um, having traveled to Italy to look at uh, a model in Trieste, Italy, where they have a very robust mental health system. Um, one of the differences, and we were trying to figure out how we could replicate that here. Um, one of the big differences is the families were very, very involved. There was no HIPAA. It, it, they were like, look, we're, we're trying to bring the family piece together. If somebody's struggling with mental illness, then let's, let's let the family be a part of that. Um, that's a struggle here. Um, we, we try, once that person turns 18, it's a whole different world. And we're talking about somebody getting into the criminal justice system. They no longer have that family support because we can't engage the family uh, or you know, mental, the mental health clinicians can't because of HIPAA. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's a misreading of HIPAA or whatever. But I think that's one of the things we need to look at is, um, you know, when we look at our laws, how can we bring in like the village, the family to help support these people? And that was a huge difference that we saw over there is that if there was a mental health issue that psychiatrist would immediately call mom, dad and brother and sister and everybody would gather around that person and be a part of that healing process, bringing that pe person back to wholeness. So if we could work somewhere around that, I know that, you know, privacy laws are very important, but we need to do a better job at including more people in the holistic recovery of people and keeping people, again, from, from going down that road. You'll talk to family members of persons suffering with mental illness and they say, oh, I know when my son's gonna, gonna head down that road. I know the cycle. And they can't reach out to the doctors because the doctors won't talk to them because they're over 18. They can't reach out to the, the clinicians because the clinicians won't talk to them because now that person's over 18. So I think we need to have, whether it's legally or just uh, an, a systemic change, and that's just one piece. And I'm, not, I'm obviously not talking about criminal law, but that's one thing that I've seen over and over again, be a frustration to, to family members here. Um, and it leads to you know um, a less um, efficient way of dealing with somebody, keeping them out of trouble. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in and kind of um, follow on to what um, was said, just, just thinking about the, the two words, uh, holistic and family units, um, and the power of what a family unit can do around keeping people and communities safe. Um, I, I think that one of the things that um, that that we've that I've worked on here in California um, is really trying to get more members of law enforcement um, to, to really take a hard look at the choices um, that are being made. And they're made in, um, they're made for the purpose of public safety, but sometimes they're not actually keeping us all the way safe. Um, and, and sometimes there are, it feels like there's big trade-offs. Um, and so I think getting law enforcement to just be to pause and actually be comfortable looking back at the decisions that have been made over the several decades. Um, and that one of the things that has happened 
is that when a person is prosecuted and convicted and sentenced, the, the ripple effect that happens, um, it's, it's a person that is being sentenced and sent away, um, but oftentimes it's their children, their mothers, their families, their community, their whole entire church, um, you know, that is serving that sentence. And so um, when, when we think about the role of bringing people home from prison who can be safely released, um, it, it's also about building back the fabric of these communities. And I think one of the things that in the in the conversation around crime rates or the perception of crime rates and people think that this means that we need to be tougher now, what we're I think what we're not recognizing is that the more people that we're able to safely release and bring back to their communities to build what was just mentioned, this holistic community, this ability for families to wrap themselves around one another um, is 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 actually a way to combat. Um, the perception or what we're seeing in, in, in the news. I think it's a way to actually keep us safer um, by doing this. And so, um, you know, obviously the, the I'm biased in the legislation that I think has been helpful um, for California, um, but that is getting, allowing prosecutors to actually go back to court um, and to say to the judge or honor, I asked for this person to be sent away for 10, 20, 30 years. And I'm now back to say to you, your honor, that I believe that this person should come home um, and should come home for all of the reasons that I just mentioned, that they were probably serving a sentence they shouldn't have received to begin with. Um, but we can you know, agree to disagree on that. But but today, this person has transformed, and we know now that this person could be an asset in our communities. They could actually help to keep us safer. They could help to build back these, um, you know, communities that have been decimated by these decisions um, of the last three decades. So um, I I I don't have a legislative pitch for the future for now, but I think that the more that the actors who have been at the forefront of making these decisions to send people away, um, to have them involved with looking broader and looking more holistically at the impact of these decisions and really, really remembering the value of building communities back as a way to keep us safer is, is something that um, we're, we're certainly hoping to see more of. I'd like to hop in here, um, and I definitely agree with Hillary that our the public safety approaches for the past couple of decades have been harmful uh, in many ways and disproportionately harmful to black and brown and marginalized communities, and we all know the statistics support that. I think the other thing um, that reform has definitely helped us do uh, is some of what Captain Bixler just mentioned, be able to identify other challenges that we have in systems that prevent us from being able to take a different approach um, to public safety, a more comprehensive approach or the right approach. Um, the spirit, again, behind 47 and reform is really for us to expand how we look at public safety, to interrupt crime from happening, um, prevent crime from happening in the first place, and not over-rely uh, on incarceration to do that. Um, for things that are very clearly social issues, very, cl very clearly health issues um, that this system is not designed to address. No one should have to go to prison to be able to access mental health services. So we already knew there was a, a, an issue with that. The majority of California voters agreed with that as well. It's a common sense approach that we can't keep incarcerating a problem away, that we actually have to deal with it. And so the funds that we've been able to redirect 
to those services and programs to help us get to the root. That That is the goal, uh, I think, of reform. And the work that we're doing is to address the root cause of the problem so that we don't have to continue to rely on systems that are not going to be effective at addressing it. And in doing that, we're able to uncover other areas that we really need to make change. Um, when I hear about you know, supporting people when they're coming home, making sure they have stable housing, when I hear about a family surrounding someone who's uh, dealing with a mental health crisis or addiction, in my mind, those are common sense approaches. Those are the things that we need to do in order for people to be safe and healthy and to get the best outcome. It doesn't matter if it's a child in school um, or someone who's struggling um, with, a, with a serious crisis. It's very similar in the approach. We have to wrap around that individual. The community also has to be healthy. And so I think that's the spirit behind this work is really taking a different approach, moving the resources to allow us to be able to do that. Um, and writing historic wrong in that we cannot continue to criminalize uh, everything that's related to quality of life. Uh, and that there was a very clear and intentional goal behind that that succeeded um, in continuing to harm specific communities. And so we have an opportunity to right that wrong. We have an opportunity to deal with the root cause of the problem. And we have an opportunity to make our communities well uh, and safe in a, in a real way, in a real holistic way. Um, and that's what I think is right about reform legislation and it also presents a challenge because we have the issue right now. Um, and so again, really scaling up and helping folks understand what the new responses look like. They're not alternatives, right? These are um, replacements for things that have not worked and the right approaches. So you say that, and I, and I wanna ask this question, um, and when I started on this beat, I'm, I'm, it took me a while to get what was, you know, happening in terms of seeing justice in a different lens and this sort of um, transformation that happens a little bit by bit. And, you know, it took me a while to get it and I finally got it. But for Californians who are used to, I mean, for example, um, Governor Newsom is, has closed one prison planning to close another, planning to close juvenile prisons. And, you know, people are going to, more people are going to be in county jails. And in terms of thinking about um, justice reimagined, re how does that look? How should Californians be, understand the transformation that's happening? Permit me to take a stab at this. And, yeah. and I want to, reiterate some of the things that have already been said. And I, th I think I agree with almost everything that's been said so far. I mean, one of the real problems that California has is we're a huge state with lots of different communities, rural communities, urban communities, rich communities, poor communities, racial diversity. And to try to find um, systems that fit all of those communities on the statewide is extraordinarily challenging. Um, a lot of the programs that have been mentioned so far the Hillary's, the, the prosecution resentencing program, the mental health program mentioned in, in Los Angeles, they're great, but they're, they still have not achieved anywhere near the scale, the scale that we need in California to uh, achieve you know, real significant um, reform. So I do think that it requires along the lines of what Tanish was saying, a true reimagining of, of the, the system. And as much as I would have liked to have joined you in Italy, 
Um, there's been a lot of, you know, look to European models about how to address uh, criminal justice. And one of those, which I think is promising and something that we're supporting here in California, um, are models that have intermediate steps between incarceration, between the streets and incarceration, both on the front end and the back end. So one of the things that, um, that uh, I'm sorry, Captain Brixer mentioned was that you can divert, uh, you can order somebody diverted who has a mental health crisis, but there's no place to go. We need an infrastructure to, to do that. Infrastructure that can both be a treatment facility, but also have you know safe, safety. Um, right now, uh, the Los Angeles County Jail is our largest mental health hospital in America, which is just a shame. We're doing more harm than good there, and there needs to be a, problem, a solution to that. Also on the back end, and I think Hillary mentioned this as well, is that we're not providing enough services for people who are released from jail and prison. Instead, you're behind bars one day, and then you're out in the streets and the next day. And perhaps your family is there to help you, or perhaps not. And some families are able to support folks, Many are not. And candidly, I feel that especially people who are dealing with severe mental illness, this is a job that's for professionals. It's great to have supportive families, but you know, as somebody who has significant mental health and addiction in my family, um, you know, even if you have the all the resources in the world and a terrific family, really need professional help and intervention. So, like I said, one of the models that I think that California can and should implement is some sort of intermediate, they used to be called halfway houses, and it's a bit of an antiquated term, but a way that people can spend the last portion of some incarceration, or perhaps the first portion of their incarceration, in a community-based program that is really based around, primarily based around rehabilitation um, and um, recovery, rather than um, punitiveness. Um, which is really what our jails and prisons are designed to do right now. Um, and they're extraordinarily punitive. And I think California has realized that there's little social benefit to having excessively punitive systems. And we need systems that are really gauged around um, rehabilitation and ultimately public safety. Um, so I think that's something that there are pilot programs. Again, this is a scalability program that CDCR has begun to un unravel. They've shown incredible success in terms of reducing crime and improving public safety. I think that there should be uh, much more of that. Like I said, the governor's plan with regard to uh, mental health programs, I, I think is, a, is another promising good step, but to find scalable programs that might be able to approach you know, communities in general, give folks the resources that they need um, is, you know, the most difficult challenge. I will say just, you know, I remain optimistic about this. California has over the past 10 years dramatically reduced the number of people behind bars. And if you look at that 10 year period, I know there are blips and ups and downs along the way and week to week and month to month, but our crime rates have, have gone down. Um, and the last thing I, I'll say is that I do think that we need um, either more support or better policing throughout California. Clearance rates are very low, um, and whether that's because of inadequate resources or inadequate technology or other problems, I'm you know I'm interested to hear. But um, I I do think that um, these are widespread problems, very difficult on a large state. But there are some solutions that we can implement that I think uh, approach the problem in what we all really want, 
which is, you know, increased, you know, public safety in California. Does anyone have anything else to add? Just going to add on, on that piece, you know, LA County has uh, a newer um, office called the Office of Diversion and Reentry. Um, great program, got, it has, has really good systems in place to get people from, uh, you know, a misdemeanor case called misdemeanor, misdemeanor incompetent to stand trial or a missed or a felony incompetent to stand trial. If they get that, that um, uh, from a judge, they will be placed, we have um, facilities that are like you said, halfway houses, step down um, facilities. But now, as we all know, there is a problem with um, the NIMBY. Um, people don't want that in their neighborhoods. I don't care which neighborhood you're in, um, affluent, um, you know, um, underserviced areas, but nobody really wants that. So that is, a, again, a challenge that we all face. Um, and I don't know the solution to that, um, but I do know that they're having great success at getting people into a community um, in some of these communities and they're not having issues that people thought they would have in these communities. So I think it's it's maybe getting baby steps. Like you said, it's, it's scalable. Um, I've seen other agencies uh, come in, other counties come in, look at the way LA County does it and go back to their counties. And some of them are out of state, but some of them are here in the state and they're gonna go back and try to scale it to, to what they do. Just like you know, the mental health unit at the LAPD, I have uh, visited um, agencies that have a hundred officers and they're able to scale it. So there's things that, that are scalable. Now, funding is, is a big piece of it. And, the, and the, you know, coming from the feds, now to the state, now to the county, and then to the locals, I know that that's, can be cumbersome. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that I've seen is um, the money fight between different facilities who want to um, fight over the same pot of money and the, the ease of which that money comes down from the state to the county to the, to the local. So those are just a couple kind of um, things I just wanted to highlight. I may respond just very quickly. First of all, the governor has over $400 million in the budget this year to go to law enforcement and police. So hopefully that will be helpful to some of these problems. And I agree completely that the NIMBYism problem is a real issue with regard to some of these community reentry programs or, or halfway houses or whatever you wanna call them. However, and this is I think a media challenge is these people are coming back to the communities regardless, right? So do we want them to come back to communities prepared and with the support and professional supervision that they deserve and need? As a society, do we want to provide that, or do we want to just dump them on the street, which is what basically what we're doing? They're coming back to communities already, and do, should they be prepared with the treatment and supervision that they need, or just without it? Um, and I think that that's really the choice. One question around this is: all of these issues go hand in hand, uh, which is a testament to sort of how inadequate people are getting the help that they need. Um, how do, should communities try to attack or answer, you know, try to address these issues? There are so many, they're all intertwined. And um, I was speaking to different groups who were saying, you know, we just don't know which, what to do first. You know, is it, is it, is it mental health? Is it housing? Is it how do you figure out which way to go? Uh, I'll just say that, um... For communities that are heavily impacted with these issues, they are, they're already dealing with them. You know, they never really had the support, resources, or infrastructure um, to, to respond to all the needs. And so, however, however they need to, you know, out of their pocket, out of their living room, um, you know, taking money from their organizations, coming together to create a safety net that hasn't really existed 
um, that's what communities, especially those heavily impacted by these issues, um, have always done. It's what we've always done historically. Um, now it's about actually supporting those community-led infrastructures so that they are integrated into the larger public safety system. And I was just talking to someone um, who's a good friend and a mentor here in San Francisco. She's a crisis responder. Um, she actually works for the city and county, uh, but she had mentioned yesterday about, you know, obviously the immense trauma that she's exposed to um, directly responding to homicides and deaths in the community, um, but also um, her years of service, right? And in the work that she did, whether it was community or now with the city and county, it's nowhere comparable um, to what a law enforcement officer would receive or a paramedic. And in many ways, she has a lot of those skills and has to utilize them probably more often than, than most do um, in those public safety roles. And so kind of going back to this, this thought and understanding that public safety is so much bigger and broader than the way we narrowly defined it, and then that people have been stepping in and providing that safety net, responding to these issues with shoestring budgets or none at all, um, preventing crime, saving lives, um, but now there needs to be that investment to actually provide the infrastructure that's needed for them to continue doing that work. And you will see the impact because we do see it. Um, it's not to minimize the challenges. The challenges are real. Um, you know, there was a, a, an organizer from Los Angeles that was up here in Sacramento the other day um, and mentioned that, you know, the work that they have been doing um, with organizing around ceasefire, they were able to reduce homicides by half in his community. And a lot of that work was unfunded. And so we, there's a perception that not much is happening or that the problems are so big um, that no one's able to touch them. But there actually are people touching and responding to these issues and creating safety. And so now it's about uplifting those strategies and pulling that into the larger conversation, really respecting and investing in that work as part of the public safety infrastructure. So with that point, which is which is a great point, um, communities, churches, you know, are are doing are stepping up in ways in ways in areas where government sort of is failing. And what how and I say this because some of my church members were like, we're going to tune in and we want to ask you want you to ask this question. What more can they do? What more can people demand? from the state to actually, I guess, listen to communities around these issues and learn from people who are doing the work. And it's hard to say, because when you think of the government, you think of this, you know, big thing and it, it, you know, it's hard to get, you know, people don't understand legislation, but they do understand that someone, you know, next door just, just got out of prison and needs a job or needs food or needs something and they provide that. How can the state do a better job of, like you said, supporting those people? Well, off the cuff, um, those voices have to be respected and they have to be centered. You know, the people that uh, have the lived experience, uh, and I'll say this is especially true for uh, the Black community and um, for communities that are heavily impacted by crime and violence, many times we are blamed for our own victimization and the conditions um, that we experience and that's felt and it's felt in the responses even in the public safety responses that are implemented that target our communities and so how we can do more one is that we have to be valued we have to be seen as part of the solution um, and that we have the competency 
and that we've already have the skill for a lot of what needs to happen, um, but that needs to be supported and recognized. And specifically in policy conversations, it, it has a lot to do with who's in the room. Um, and a lot of folks are so busy responding to what's happening in their communities, trying to provide that support, churches being the safety net. We saw the same thing you know, during the pandemic, everyone had to switch hats. You know, folks who were uh, community outreach workers then became first responders during the pandemic, passing out PPE and, and making sure folks have food. So I think, you know, just recognizing one, that folks need to be centered in the conversation, need to be invited, need to be respected, um, and that the work that they do need to be, needs to be viewed as a part of the solution um, is, is a good start to that. Uh, and then again, putting the resources in place to make sure that folks don't have to be a one-man band. Uh, and again, this is not a cure-all. This is one of many strategies that have to complement each other, right? So there are things that we have to do, um, serious work that we have to do around justice and accountability, especially for communities um, that in populations that have never felt like either of those things are justice and safety are things that they've ever experienced. Um, but that we continue to work together to make that happen. So those partnerships are important. You know, I could imagine Captain Bixler probably has a ton of stories about ways that he's had to partner with community to support folks, um, you know, as he's providing and re responding to folks and wanting to provide better service. Um, same with Hillary. You know, she's mentioned as we're doing resentencing, you know, the family structure and community support goes a long way. And so really seeing all of these pieces as integral parts of the public safety response is the most important thing to do, um, and it's and it's helpful. It, it's actually it actually makes an impact. Uh, but folks need to be brought into the conversation, centered, and be a part of the design of the policy and recommendations that that we implement. Captain um, Bixler, I am curious. How have you, with the uh, with the mental health care, with the mental health program that you all have, and, and you you've launched. Uh, and how have you been able to bring in community? And, you know, you mentioned families, uh, the, the, the restrictions for HIPAA, but how have you been able to work around that or try to work around that? They're trade secrets. I can't tell you. No, um, <laughs> we um, specifically with bringing in community. So one of the things that the, the chief allowed me to do several years ago was hire four officers into my mental health unit whose sole job was community connection. So they would, uh, our city is broken up into four geographic bureaus and their job was to go out and meet as many people as they could involved in um, mental health response from the, the really small clinics to very large, um, you know, um, county agencies and everything in between to find out when we do have somebody who's high risk, high recidivist, let's connect them to the right resource. Um, a lot of that started just with um, our partnership with NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, very close relationship with them. We can reach out. I have, you know, many numbers on my phone. I can just call out and, hey, hey Jim, I need help. I got a family here in this community. Who do you have? And so that's, that was, you know, it has to be a top-down investment. So for us, it was hiring four officers that I gave an advanced pay grade to. So they were paid more than the, you know, normal training officer to invest. But that was a department investment. So that had came down from the chief down of like, Brian, that's a great idea. I'm going to fund it. So that that is kind of one of those pieces that like, you know, you have to be in like like Tanish said, like you got you got to invite people to conversation. When I went to my first meeting um, as the um, back in probably seven years ago, a community meeting, um, there was, I think, a total of 10 people there. 
five of them were police officers and five were mental health clinicians. And that was our community meeting. And I said, this is, this is broken. It's not working. Um, once I was able to hire those officers, the very next meeting I went to after, or the first meeting after they were hired, there was a hundred people in the room and it wasn't cops and clinicians. It was community members, people that belong to small. So that, that was like you talked about that. That's the invitation to, um, let's all be a part of the solution so that when we do have somebody who is, um, you know, having a mental health crisis and police officers do get called to the scene, uh, a lot of times we, we, we don't have anything else to do. We can't, we're not, you know, we don't know those pieces, but if you just pick up a phone and now um, I have a connection in that community, I know who can come and assist with that. And, and so that's been a huge piece of it. Um, so those, those are just kind of some of the, some of the pieces when it comes to HIPAA, um, having a clinician in the car with you, a, a mental health nurse with a police officer together. Um, it's pretty amazing what you can do when one nurse calls another nurse at a facility and says, hi, how are you? Instead of me saying, this is, you know, officer Bixler, no, this is, Hey, we work together. Oh yeah. How are you doing? And they, they, they figure out how to work around, um, not illegally, but they figure out how to, how to get it done, how, how to make sure that the information is passed along in such a way that we get a, a better outcome. Uh, and when we have our mental health resources actually engage with a person, um, I think we have, it's about 60, no, 70% of the time, we don't see that person. We get them linked to the right resource and we don't see them again. And now, again, there's the, a large chunk that is high risk, high recidivist, and we see them a lot. Uh, and sometimes there's just, there's no, um, we haven't found the right, the right formula yet for that, for that individual. So hope that answered your question. It did. Thank you. So I'm going to pivot a little bit because we have some panel, some questions for the panel, uh, which is great. I'm going to start with this one just because it's sort of aligned with what we were just speaking about. Um, this question is from Lynn Bernal. She said, Governor Newsom, I guess he just proposed, he had a press conference today. He just proposed forcing some homeless people into treatment. Can you all, can someone comment on this? Does anyone have any thoughts? So the details of the program, it's, I think he's calling it care court, have you know yet to be um, fleshed out and obviously devils in the details and in the implementation. And again, we have a huge state that's gonna implement this in various different ways. But I think in theory, the idea is sound, meaning that we have tons of people who are mentally ill who are, who are in the mental health system. I mean, excuse me, in the criminal justice system. Like I said, about 70% of people who are locked up in jail and 50% who are in prison have some significant mental health issues. Um, and we need to find a way to get them treatment in a facility and programs that are not car that are primarily treatment-based and non-carceral. I think that that's the idea behind the governor's program. Now, there is a very tricky and difficult civil rights question about what do you do with people who are mentally ill, who are maybe not committing crimes, um, but are, are really disruptive to the community um, and don't want treatment. And it's particularly difficult because mental illness, one of the symptoms of mental illness is frequently that you don't appreciate that you're mentally ill. I think as a society, uh, we owe it to try to find a way that we're not dealing with people who, um, with only with sticks, meaning uh, you better get this treatment or else we're going to incarcerate you for a very, very long time. Instead, provide programs and opportunities and housing and supportive services that are sweet enough carrots, follow my metaphor, um, uh, that really as many people as possible want to seek out these services and maybe not just themselves, but their families and their communities. And I think the community should encourage that and identify people who are in this situation, but it's extraordinarily difficult. It is a huge problem. If it was a simple one, we in California would have solved it. And it's a problem, not just here, it's across the country. 
but it's a real problem about how do we deal with people who are, um, you know, this cross section of people who are mentally ill and in the criminal justice program. I really applaud the government, the governor trying to do something aggressive about this. Um, and it, it won't be easy and the implementation will be difficult. But I, I think that um, it is, in my memory, the first sort of comprehensive um, uh, and really appears to be significantly funded statewide effort to try to uh, address this issue. And um, I, I look forward to, to, to seeing it roll out. We have another question um, from Steve Smith, uh, who said, according to the AG's Open Justice website, from 2011 to 2020, homicides are up, aggravated assaults are up, motor vehicle theft is up, rape is up, larceny is up, arson is up. Yes, many categories are down, but how much of that reduction is redefinition and how much is actual reduction? So I'll answer that too. So homicides in particular have been, you know, up in California and obviously they're most they're the most troubling crimes. However, they still remain relatively rare and they're this is a national phenomenon. California everywhere across the country during the pandemic has seen this large spike in homicides. Fortunately, California has seen less of a spike than other states. So I really don't think that there's anything to do with our policies here than in California that have, you know, generated these spikes. Overall crime remains down. Um, over the past decade. Yes, there are spikes in different crimes at different times and month to month things will be different. But in general, we're a safer state than we were 10 years ago. Um, and then of course that difference differs, differs from community, but statewide. So really does not have to do with the definition, definitional changes. There are obviously circumstantial changes and that most of all, I think the pandemic, but overall California, I think is safer than it has been, safer than other states. And that, and that we've managed to implement these reforms in a fairly effective way um, to both reduce in unnecessary incarceration, begin to address and improve things like mental health and, addict and addiction, um, and maintain or reduce public safety at the same time. Uh, a question that I, um, I, I have, and um, we only have about seven minutes now, that I wanted to ask that all of you sort of alluded to was the media's role in, um, in talking about these issues, writing about these issues, news reports. What are, what are we getting as reporters? What are we getting right? And what are we getting, I don't wanna say wrong. I, I, get, I would ask the list, what are you getting right? What are we getting wrong? How can we improve the reporting? I, because on one end, you know, you have to be, you know, you have to be uh, knowledgeable about what's going on. And if, you know, your readers are saying, you know, crime is increased, you can't, you have to talk about the issue. You can't ignore it. Um, but also you want to be fair and you want to be, um, have some compassion and, and be thoughtful in, in the way we word things. So, what does the media get wrong and what do we get right? Because I've heard the media say it several times. <laughs> All right, I've spoken too much, but I'm just gonna jump in and say the media has done a horrible disservice in this, in this area. Um, I know that, you know, the cliche, if it bleeds, it leads. People believe the crime is up, the crime is down. And the media should tell that story. 
The people believe the media that crime is up because of the media stories, you know, not because of anything else. Where do you think they get that information? It's certainly not from, you know, official um, statistics because the official statistics say that crime is down. So I think it's the media's responsibility to educate folks that crime is down, these systems by and large are working, and that we need a lot more work to be done. But the fear mongering and um, bleeds leads mentality of the media, I think, is extraordinarily destructive. I will just say, I think that while I agree with some of that, I think that the fear of crime, um, I mean, we, our, our job is to reduce the fear and incidence of crime, and they're not often the same. It is how crime impacts me as a person in my community, and that's not the same everywhere. So I think that the people that I talk to in crime-impacted communities, it's very real when they see um, the, the violent crime or even something as simple as my car got broken into, um, where we think that's a fairly minor crime, but if you've ever had your car broken into or your house broken into, it's very personal. So I think that that, that is also a piece of it. So it's like you said, it's the fear and incidence of crime. I'm, I'm firmly with you on the, on the, if it leads, it bleeds, you're right. Um, if it's not sensational, believe me, I've had many, many interviews hours long interviews with people about the incredible work that we're doing in LA with um, our mental health response, with changing the system and allowing, you know, Dee Dee Hirsch to handle 1700 calls. How many of those reports actually made the paper um, or a, um, you know, the five o'clock news? It's, it, and I, I think you're right there that the good stuff that's happening is not being um, touted as it well as, as it should, because it's just, again, um, who wants to watch a police officer talking to a, you know, a 12 year old girl who do, he just talked off the bridge because she was contemplating suicide. And for two hours, he's, he's had a conversation with her and it had a really good outcome. Nobody's snapping a picture of that and putting it out. It's not on anywhere in social media feed. And if it is on our social media feed, people dismiss it as hype. So I, yes, there you go. <laughs> I think um, the what we would like to see more of, I'll start with sort of um, just being kind of optimistic around reimagining a lot. Um, you know, for media to focus on individual people and when they fall or struggle, um, I think is missing the bigger picture, which is these institutions that we have are also just as much to blame um, for the, the, the what, what is portrayed in the media as this one person, um, this one thing, this one crime that was committed. Um, and so the more that media can be shedding a light on the systemic failures, um, you know, where parole got it wrong, where the prosecutor got it wrong, where law enforcement got it wrong, where the support network that we're supposed to have in this state in this country um, was not there, the more that that can be elevated so that we can see this as a systemic issue and not just placing all of the blame on an individual actor, um, I think that that is something that would be helpful. Um, the, the other thing around this, and I, and I know that this is probably a little bit simplistic, um, but you had asked the question around, you know, reimagining where we can be going. Um, it, it, it seems very basic that there are thousands of people in prison that don't need to be there. They can be safely released. The numbers are all there. Um, the money that we're spending to keep them there is atrocious, right? If we can shut down prisons, we can get that money and we can reinvest it and we can be preventing crimes in the beginning. Um, so maybe some more focus on that simple, but yet taking a very long time to achieve in this state would be also helpful um, for this work. Tanish, do you have anything to add? 
Um, regarding the media, I think a lot of, uh, I echo a lot of what's been said. Um, and again, just acknowledging that, um, to Captain Bixler's point, for people who have really been impacted by crime and violence, it's important to understand what's happening. Um, and that is a real part of the news. But to Mike's point, there's, there's just been too much fear mongering uh, and it's dangerous. It's, it's dangerous and irresponsible um, to only be focusing on um, the negative rhetoric and, um, and not be uplifting how and this, the solutions that we have um, that we're working towards. Um, and so I would like to see more of that. I would like to see um, more conversation around um, the definition of safety in our communities too and how we're able to achieve it um, without, at, without being at each other's expense, right? How do we make it equitable? Uh, and I know that's not sexy. It's not sexy, it doesn't grab headlines as much, but uh, I do think that journalists have a responsibility um, to help us bring these conversations into you know, a social setting where, where it becomes water cooler talk, it becomes you know, kitchen table talk, it becomes a conversation you have in your offices. Um, and we do have to have a very serious conversation about what we mean when we say safety and how do we make it real. And I think the more we have that conversation, the easier it is for us to stop sensationalizing every bad thing that happens and really talk about our way through this and how we're gonna continue building it out. Um, and, you know, being realistic, again, that, you know, we, we are experiencing a crisis where a lot of folks are struggling, um, but that we are doing, we need to do more and how we get there is not gonna be easy, but we have the opportunity to do that now. Well, I want to thank all of you for um, joining and answering the questions and being so thoughtful in your answers. I appreciate it. I'm sure the viewers uh, appreciate it. And so thank you all so much and you have a good rest of your day. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, Baranda. That was a great uh, panel discussion. And uh... the Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.